Hello and welcome to Canada's History Podcast. I'm Caitlin Vitt. Today's podcast looks at the challenges of presenting human rights at museums. How do you present human rights atrocities to the public? How can museums adapt to today's day and age? What is the relevance of museums today? I spoke with historians and curators about these topics at a conference hosted in Winnipeg in September. People from around the world gathered at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights for the event put on by the Federation of International Human Rights Museums and the International ICOM Committee for Collecting. Frederick L. and Roxana Ortiz are part of a team opening the Museum of Movements in Malmö, Sweden. This is a brand new museum with no inherited collections or archives. It focuses on migration and democracy and is set to open in 2023. It's a facility for people to represent themselves. The good thing with the museum is also that it's something that lasts over time. This is like a hundred year project. It's not like we're doing a weekend and everybody has to be squeezed in in that weekend and be on stage and to say their thing. We'll be there for everyone to say what they want to do, but we need to have long processes. So we need to establish relationships with a lot of different uh, stakeholders. And over time, we will see when, it's, when we're ready for an exhibition and when we're ready for maybe a talk, a, a seminar, and there's so many other ways of expressing yourself as well. So I think they will have to choose us. We will be there, they choose us. And it's not about representing uh, diverse communities. It's about putting a topic where you can analyze and discuss and exhibit from different perspectives. So the perspectives are important. For example, what is democracy if you don't have money? What is democracy if you uh, come from a minority group? What is democracy if you uh, have an immigrant background? Or yeah, so or if you're a woman, or if you're a man, or neither of those. What is democracy depending on which perspective you, you, you enter to the question? The, all the stakeholders actually challenge us, the official narrative of what democracy is and what migration is. So the, the, there are gaps that we need to fill in. We ask the, all the stakeholders, all the people we talk with, to question uh, the different parameters, one of them being, uh, should this be a museum? We're open to the to them to, for them to say that, no, we want it to be a community centre, whatever. But I think both civil society, activist groups, researchers, and of course museum professionals, they said, no, no, no it's got to be a museum, because these issues are so important and they're so fragile. What museums have is a knowledge base, the connection to universities, but also a space where you're free to talk. And it's a safe, place, a safe room where you can where you are physically safe, but you're also sort of mentally safe. It's a place where you can think and you can talk and you can listen. When we were out and reached out to the communities, uh, when we talked to over 164 organizations, um, they really wanted to see the topics in a museum because the museum also carry uh, the weight of uh, the issues and, and themes that you can expose in a museum, in an exhibition. Uh, so they, the response was also that this museum should be placed in, a central, in the central part of the city, it should be visible, uh, it should be strong, uh, 
So these are the, the, the works that we also keep working with. And the, the museum in itself should be a place where the thresholds are very, very low. You should come into a museum hungry, you should be able to use the toilet, you should be able to feel comfortable. When we talk with the youth, for example, we, we, we really, really want to know, like, why would you go to a museum? And they are, like, interested in going because of the topics, because they said, like, oh, it's a place where you can hang around and get the knowledge as well. But <laughs> you always feel like you are disturbing an order in a museum. Uh, so these are things that we want to develop in the new one and for example such an easy thing the floors why are the floors so cold you should have warm floors you should be able to listen to music you should be able to hang around in a museum i also spoke with christopher till from the apartheid museum and the javit art center in south africa he discussed how art can be a powerful and engaging way to present the history of human rights one traditionally looks at how museums looks at, looks at the past or even in the future. It's 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 really constructed uh, using photographs, uh, texts, uh, artifacts, description of artifacts, testimonies, which is all very powerful stuff. Um, but very often, um, I think the nuance of what an artist is able to provide to any discussion or any uh, event or any memory or any hope for the future, it can be very um, dramatically and creatively uh, investigated uh, through the lens of art and the artist. So I think artists um, have a particular place within society in reporting what they see or what they feel or how they see or how they feel. It's an abstract way of dealing with certain issues, but it is also a way which can provide enormously powerful uh, emotions um, and, and insights into what can just be a bald reported event or whatever it might be. That expansion of one's mind in able to trying to deal with the issues and then uh, condense that into uh, a work of art, however that work of art is produced or if it, whether it's a performance or whether it is a, 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 a static work of art or whatever it might be, just has enormous potential and it, it, it allows people to approach something on their own terms and interpret uh, what they feel and see of what the artist has produced uh, around that particular topic. One hopes that that rise in consciousness and challenging people to uh, engage with the elements of uh, what human rights um, represent is taken on board. And that's again why I think art is a particularly good way of doing it, because it can be a call to arms, but it's not a hard instruction or a hard case scenario. It is something that you can approach in a way where you begin to think about things. And uh, that's what's important. I mean, to, it's all very well to acknowledge human rights and acknowledge a list and a tick off, you know, whether this has happened or that hasn't. But the, the nuance again is important of taking on board your own place within articulating your own involvement in or advocacy of or practice of the elements which are human rights. And the word human 
is important, rights there, but you know there are also responsibilities. And I think that the human dimension is brought into focus and one hopes that almost behavioral change or subconscious acknowledgement of and ad advocacy for human rights begins to change the way that we work as society. Joan Samalczyk from the University of Toronto presented on the various challenges of addressing human rights atrocities. After her presentation, I talked with her about how much detail in exhibitions is required for people to understand the extent of human rights violations. It's always a constant negotiation, and it comes about with how survivors of torture are asked to testify. How much of their story, how much do they have to bleed to be believed? And often, if you just had um, a historical context, for somebody's experience or just um, the preponderance of data and, and people's testimony should be enough, um, but it often isn't. For instance, when I was at the Canadian Centre for Victims of Torture, people would mistake it for an animal rights organization and think that animals are tortured more readily than people are and sort of argue that that's not something and then you think well no there's a hundred different countries represented here so there is an urgency to make sure people know the survivors themselves want the story told because um, as bad as it is they say it's worse in Rwanda after the genocide that happened a major massacre in a church the skulls are still there it's a memorial mausoleum historical evidence of genocide. Does one need to do that? Do we need to see the Madonic death camps of the Holocaust? Tool Sling Prison in Cambodia is exactly the way it was when the Vietnamese came in and liberated it. And there's still blood on the floor. And as opposed to places that paint over and whitewash history. So um, I think as much, it's a really important job for historians um, to make sure that they cre create an evidentiary framework for people and examples to be understood and believed. But that's the role of a historian um, to do, to say this happened, this is factual, and equally important if the state was the perpetrator, that's the urgency for people to say this, so the state says this happened, that had their experiences had been previously denied or erased, now to say, no, it happened. So it's a number of different steps that civic society has a role to play in, faith groups have a role to play in, um, and that there be space enough for survivors to be heard. For the future, it's equally important when there aren't survivors, how will, how will we know? We need to have documented evidence that professionals, like historians, can provide. I also spoke with Jody Simkin, the Director of Culture Affairs and Heritage for Clahoos First Nation. She's part of the team helping to develop an app to repatriate items confiscated during the 67-year potlatch ban. 
The development of the app really comes because there is no single document that we're aware of in which everyone's pieces that were confiscated or taken under duress during the 67-year potlatch ban, uh, where those items end up. And so over the course of many years, people have contacted me to say, there's a piece in this museum and there's a piece in this museum. And so we, we needed a moment to step back and figure out if there was an opportunity, if the technology didn't exist, if we had the opportunity to make the technology and could then move our story forward from there. And so we're quite excited about it. Um, we have partner institutions at the Royal BC Museum, at the Museum of Vancouver, uh, our partner agencies right now, and we also have um, Haida Gwaii and Awikano as, as part of the original pilot project. And the goal is that uh, this is a standalone app designed specifically for small technology, so your phone or your, your tablet, uh, you'll upload the app the way that you upload every other app, and from that you'll be able to help us track where potlatch items are. So exponentially increasing a nation's ability to capture where their pieces are. So in essence, you'll upload that on your phone and then you'll go traveling the globe and as you will do, you'll go into a museum and if you see a piece of potlatch material, you can register it for the nation and that will populate in the back of the house. So things like the name, uh, the institution, the item number, the city, all of that information will be captured and then it will populate to the back of the house to the participating nation who will get pinged and become aware, um, or reinforce awareness, awareness anyway, um, that a piece is sitting in an institution. We know from our own work how important repatriation is, and we also know that there's not enough time or money to actually engage in full repatriation. So this is a way that um, museum goers can help uh, with the calls to action uh, through the Truth and Reconciliation and through the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of the Indigenous People. It really is a moment where all of those things come together and individuals will be able to help in a way that is very tangible and valuable to the nations. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks for listening.